thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. The Apostle Paul speaks more about the gospel of Jesus Christ than any other biblical writer. I was surprised to find that there were only 54 usages of the word gospel in our New Testament, but I was also interested to know that 40 of those usages were by the Apostle Paul himself. He was a champion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He clearly delineates the constituent parts of the gospel. And he lived to preach Christ crucified. It was the modus operandi of his life. And we see it in the book of Galatians. We're going to look at that in some detail today, the passage. But also I cannot help but think of the way he introduces himself and what he's about in writing the epistle to the Romans. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, the word is literally slave, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle according to the gospel of God. He didn't say the gospel of Christ. He said the gospel of God. Now we know Jesus is God become man. So that would cover not just Jesus, but God the Father and by association, God the Holy Spirit. I hope you know that the gospel is God's through and through. It was He who planned our salvation. It was He who initiated introduction of Himself to mankind in the person of Jesus Christ. So many people think that they found Christ. The truth is, He found us. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus says about Himself, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Many of you are familiar with the Word of God when in 1 John 4, 19, it says, we seek God because He first sought us. We love God because He first loved us. Were it not for God taking the initiative, none of us would know Him. Perhaps you're familiar with the first chapter of the book of John. And if so, you may recall how Jesus one day purposed to go forth into Galilee and He found one man, man named Philip. And he simply said to Philip, follow me. And guess what Philip did? He obeyed. He had been looking for the Messiah and he knew it. this was the one. And he went to his friend Nathaniel, who was also looking for the Messiah. He says, we have found him whom... Moses spoke in his writings and the prophets. And the scripture says, 
Jesus found Philip. But we think we find Jesus, right? Jesus uses people like you and me to find people. That's wonderful, isn't it? The great calling we have out of darkness into marvelous light, the Bible says. We are a royal priesthood, a chosen people, and not just to bask in our being chosen by God and being children of God. That is amazing. However, our main responsibility, we're part of this royal priesthood. And what are priests given to do? If I understand correctly, a priest is someone who puts man in touch with God and God in touch with man. Jesus is the great high priest, but we are in his priesthood without exception. It doesn't matter whether you're a pastor or someone who thinks very lowly of yourself in terms of what you could be used by God to do in the kingdom of God. We all are part of that vast throng of people who comprise the people of God. And God wants to use each of us. If nothing else, if you know that, you have to agree, I believe, that when Christ enters into a person's life, He finds that person, comes to live in their lives. It dignifies people like nothing else. Not that we're out to be dignified, but it gives you a sense of worth that you cannot find in any other way except being a child of God. This gospel is awesome, isn't it? God took the initiative. We call that grace. Paul has a lot to say about grace. One of the ways we think of it is unmerited favor. God has shown His unmerited favor to me and to you. And also a simple way to say it, and these little acronyms to help us remember are helpful and they're not the be all to end all in terms of helping us to understand anything, but grace, if you think of grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Isn't that a good way for us to meditate and think about the grace of God? That we have that kind of relationship with Him. And He has come to indwell us. It happened to Paul, we know. The Apostle Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory, in the book of Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to see some more things that he says about Christ as we consider the gospel of God as it was represented and presented by the Apostle Paul. We started looking at the book of Galatians last week, and we were introduced to the gospel right off the bat in verses 3 through 5. I'll leave it to you to reread that if you read it last week or studied with us. And if you haven't, take time to really ask the Holy Spirit to teach you what's being taught there. But what we're going to look at is the problem that prompted Paul to write the epistle to the Galatians. This, some believe, was his first church. Some people even say, scholars, that Galatians was his first epistle that was written. Regardless of 
that, whether that's actually true or not, we know he wrote it. It's something that was relevant to those who received it and it's relevant to us today and believers in every era. So let's look at verse six and the first part of verse seven of chapter one. And we're gonna look at the Galatians desertion. Look at verse six, I am amazed and this word translated amazed is a word which really means dumbfounded. It's not just amazed like some people are amazed at things they see or things they hear. I mean, this is a dumbfounded man. Paul was a man who very rarely found himself in the position of being dumbfounded because he was a man in connection with the Lord and a well-learned man. He said, I am dumbfounded that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. The deserting word is not a complimentary word, is it? History is dotted with stories of people who were deserters. They were traitors. The greatest tra traitor of all time, probably Judas, Iscariot, most of us would agree that he was an incredible traitor. And then in American history, the thing that comes to mind immediately to me as I was thinking of this is Benedict Arnold. In 1775, he won a vital victory at Ticonderoga as he was part of the Continental Army. He quickly rose through the ranks and he became the commanding officer at a fort which rests at the same place that West Point is in New York, we call it now, on the Hudson River. And at that time, after he became the one in charge of that fort, he began to coalesce with the British and his name is a synonym for traitor, isn't it, in our thinking? The one that I'm most fascinated by, however, goes all the way back to 480 B.C. His name is Epha, Eph, I'll say it right the third time maybe, Ephiletes Trachus. And the story, the historical event that this is associated with is when the Persians, under the leadership of their king Xerxes, were coming to even a score with the Greeks. Ten years earlier, his father, Darius, had brought a battle to this great plain of Marathon in that country or region of Greece. It was not a country like we think of. It was a coalition of city-states and so forth. And lo and behold, the mighty army of the Persians was defeated. And Xerxes was committed to do this. The numbers are astonishing to think about the number of people who were part of his group. The most conservative estimate says 120,000 soldiers. That's a lot of men, isn't it? The upper end even goes over two million. But it's clear it was a bunch of folks. And the army of Greece 
only had 7,500 with a few more, maybe up to 7,800 soldiers. And the fighting force that was the most fierce among them, the Spartans. And the Spartans took up a strategic place, you know about this, in Thermopylae. Hot Springs is what that means. Thermopylae, and they single-handedly, that three, were able to stave off the attack of this ominous and strong and very well-trained Persian army and push them back and push them back. This man whom I mentioned earlier, and I'm going to try to say his name again. <laughs> Just call him E. We'll call him E for short, okay? <laughs> this, this man turned coat on his own people. He sold them out. He had a burr in his saddle about something, and he sold them out. And there was a very carefully disguised goat path in the mountain that would allow the troops of the Persians to come and attack the Spartans from behind. This man was quite the traitor. These people in Galatia had bought a lie and they were in the process of deserting, abandoning the Lord and His gospel. And it troubled, for good reason, it troubled this man Paul who was not without deep roots in that people's lives. Perhaps you know that Paul says about himself to the Corinthian church. That was a troubled church, but this was more trouble. And he says to them, you only have one father in Christ. I'm that father. Now he wasn't trying to take the place of God the Father. He knew better. But he was their spiritual father. And he was the spiritual father of this group in Galatia also. And he was amazed. He was dumbfounded. He was shocked, actually. And what we want to note here is that he says, so quickly you have deserted Jesus. So quickly. That could mean after Paul and his team had left, it was just almost like that that they deserted. Or it could be after these false teachers who are later named in the book of Galatians as Judaizers, and we'll get to them in a moment to see what they were teaching that was so upsetting to Paul because it was something that was designed to undermine the gospel of grace, the work of God by the Spirit through Jesus Christ so quickly. And then he says, you are deserting. And I want to talk about that word just a moment more. This word, of course, was used of military deserters. And it was also used of people who deserted their religion. It was used in a number of ways about people who deserted and turned their backs on people or ideas that they embraced fully previously. And, but what we need to understand here is, and it's something so subtle, it would easily escape us if we 
we're not careful. Look again at verse 1. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting. And the tense of this verb would indicate they had not fully defected yet. There was still time and hope for them to get back in a right relationship with the Lord. And Paul was seeing them. He knew they were testing the water of this new teaching. He knew they were waffling when it came to the gospel of grace, but it was, there was still time. And the next thing we want to consider is having expressed his amazement at the Galatians' desertion, Paul now turns to denounce the false teachers. He's going to expose them. Look at the middle of verse 7. He's already said that the gospel that's being presented to them by these false teachers is a different gospel, which is really not a gospel at all. There's no real good news in it. Verse 7 goes on to say, only there are some who are disturbing you. This word, I, I was very fascinated when I began to research the way in which the word is used elsewhere in the New Testament. And what I discovered was it was used in Matthew 2-3 to describe the response, uh, reaction would be the better word, that Herod the Great had to hearing from the Magi when they came from the east to seek if he could direct them to the king of the Jews. He was the king of the Jews. And it says it troubled him. And not only did it trouble Herod the Great, it also troubled all of Jerusalem. Now, to understand why it troubled all of Jerusalem, we can see why it would trouble him. He was incredibly, incredibly insecure. In fact, he was so insecure that he put three of his ten sons to death. Not all at once, but three because he suspected that they were plotting to have him dethroned and taking his place. He even had one of his favorite wives. He had a bunch of wives, but this was close to the favorite wife. He had her killed because he thought she was colluding with one of those sons. So this man was insecure and he was troubled. And you can see why all of Jerusalem would have been troubled because he could just fly off the handle and kill a lot of people for no apparent reason. But what we know is that that kind of troubling is the, the word that is used here for disturbing. These people had heard the gospel in Galatia. They had trusted Christ. Paul had spent time, I'm sure, going over the gospel and helping them to see that it's by grace through faith and not of works that they had to simply yield their lives to the Lord. And that's not simple, is it? To yield one's life, to give life, your whole life over to the Lord and say, Lord, here I am. Send me. Use me, Lord. Any way you want to use me, I want to do this. But they were disturbed. They had Paul's teaching probably ringing in their ears at time, but they also heard these men who had come who were so 
impressive and so dictatorial, I'm sure, authoritarian. They spoke with great authority. And the result was they distorted the gospel. They gave another gospel. And here's what the gospel is. In the book of Acts chapter 15, I'd like you to just turn with me one verse, but I'd like you to see it and mark it in your Bible and go back and consider it later. Acts 15 says, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. What were they saying? It's not enough to put your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. You've got to add something to it. And that is the distortion of the gospel that was so troubling. And it troubled Paul as well. Because the gospel is about, and I'm sounding like a broken record, I don't apologize for it, it's all about the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We cannot save ourselves. And the very idea of our being able to add something to that Jesus did for our salvation, it's blasphemy, really, to suggest that we can do something that Jesus could do. Jesus did it all for us. Did He not? Thank God for Him and the way He has ministered to us in our salvation. He goes on to say, as he denounces these false teachers because they disturbed the Galatians, and not only that, they distorted the gospel, gave a false gospel. The scripture goes on to say, look at it again in verse 8, but even though we, talking about Paul and Barnabas and those who had come there, or an angel from heaven, and he chooses this example because he knew they knew and he believed it too that on occasion God would send an angel as God's messenger from heaven and that angel would reveal truth to that person or group who saw the angel that was pertinent to their lives and it would be some kind of message people would really think about. When Jesus was born on what we would call the first Christmas night, and who came to announce it to the shepherds? Angels, right? And you perhaps know that shepherds were at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale in the life of Israel. Even though the irony of that would be that they were the ones who kept the animals which were used for sacrifice in the temple. Those who were close to Jerusalem, Bethlehem nearby Jerusalem. And here the Lord appeared to them and the angels said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you glad tidings of good news that the Savior has been born today in Bethlehem. And I love this, and I know they loved it, to save all men. 
Do you know that it does not matter what your place is in the socioeconomics of our country? It doesn't matter whether you have a PhD or a third grade education. Jesus Christ died for your sins. And He offers the same introduction into His family to the person who would be the least likely person we would choose if we were doing the choosing. But God has a plan for every woman and man's life whom He saves. And He takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So beautiful, isn't it, to think about how even if an angel came from heaven and tried to correct the gospel of God that Paul proclaimed and the other apostles proclaimed, if that were to happen and that angel said, I've got a, a document in my hand that would verify what I'm saying, what are we supposed to do? No, we're not going to listen to that because it contradicts what God says. Or just pick up again in verse 8. Or should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be a curse. Now I want to talk about the phrase, preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you. The word contrary could simply mean other than. Any kind of gospel. And we have so much false doctrine and I can't remember, Paul, if you and I were talking about this, but I believe we were. Paul was listening to a preacher, I believe, in Arlington at the church that Paul was a part of at the time. And this man was highly acclaimed, highly acclaimed by the pastor of that church, which was a very noteworthy church, church I might add, but also elsewhere. And this man made the comment, that the death of Jesus on the cross was not enough to save. This was, am I telling it correctly? I could hardly believe it when Paul told me that yesterday. That is blasphemy, isn't it? That's false teaching. Other than, or more than, and I, I'm inclined to adopt that meaning of the word contrary, more than, because the Judaizers whom we looked at back in chapter 15 of Acts, they had no quarrel that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins and that He was raised again on the third day and whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But they tagged something on, else onto it, didn't they? You've got to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses. Well, that's just not true. And the gospel is just like our Lord who gave it. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It does not change. Our world is constantly barraged by change. And it keeps us off base and off center in our lives. But when we know Jesus... All these things which are going on, we're certainly interested in them and we want to be part of the solution to them, but we don't have to have our world wrecked by all the changes because we know Jesus, we live in Christ, 
we live and move and have our being in Him. And so we have peace. And that peace is quite attractive to people who don't know Jesus. When everything else is coming apart in life around us, and we are able to be men and women who know the Lord and believe in Him, and we can have peace. We're not troubled because the gospel that Jesus teaches has not been distorted in our own hearts and own minds. Contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That's strong, isn't it? The word accursed simply means, to simplify it, be damned. It's not a curse word. It means be damned for eternity. I was curious as I was preparing the message about Dante's Inferno. Many of you have read that piece of classical work. And I wanted to know if there was a special, special place for false teachers in hell, according to Dante. Now, we know the Bible is the thing we learn about matters, including hell. But Dante, there were 10 circles in his way of thinking of hell. And the eighth circle, and the further the number went up, the worse the punishment was. And the eighth circle was for frauds of any kind. But it's cited in one of the ditches. There are ten ditches in that particular realm. And he cited that people who were in authority in churches who were frauds, they were buried head down in the dirt, and the only part of their body that was above the ground were their feet, and their feet were exposed to heavy fire. Maybe because they took that message that was contradictory to the Word of God. But it's, uh, it's, it's something that Jesus was, he was impatient, to say the least, with people who claimed to be his teachers his prophets, and in fact, were leading people wrong way. Remember at the judgment, Jesus says there will be people who say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not perform miracles in your name? And so forth and so on. Jesus didn't contradict. He didn't say, no, you didn't. But he said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. We know there are false teachers who actually have powers. That's what we know. And it's a little puzzling, but they do. Where do they get them from? Well, I would say they get them from the devil. Because when you look at, for instance, the first encounter that Moses had with Pharaoh, what was the first plague? Turn water into blood. And then what did Pharaoh do? He called his magicians, thinking this is just a trick, and they did the same thing. Then what did the Lord tell Moses to do with his brother's staff? Throw it down. He threw it down, and what happened to it? Turned into a snake. So what did Pharaoh's fellows do? Well, what they did was they threw their staffs down, and they turned into snakes. Wow. The third one, though, is where the devil lost his ability. What was it? A change 
to send a plague of insects upon them. And they couldn't do that. Well, the good news for us is that our Lord is one who speaks truth plainly and clearly. And so we are men and women knowing the Lord, we can know the difference. And we need to be on the alert. It's not like we need to be worried about it. We just need to do what we're told to do. I was talking to a young man about how to distinguish between falsehood and truth just last week. And I mentioned something you all know already probably, but it's good to think of it every once in a while, that the Department of Treasury, U.S. Department of Treasury, when they're training their agents to determine if money is real or counterfeit, they don't put counterfeit bills in the hands of those whom they're training. Rather, they want them to learn what the real thing feels like. So they'll be so familiar with that which is genuine, and then they'll know at once that which is illegitimate. And that's true for us. We need to be men and women who read the Word of God. We don't have to be scholars. We just need to be readers who want to hear from the Lord. And He will help us in this regard. Well, let's move on. Verse 9 is a repeat of verse 8. You can see Paul is intent upon getting this across. And more importantly, the Holy Spirit's wanting to reinforce it to them and to us. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary, it's that same concept, more than or other than, you are not to be receptive of that. Let that man be a curse. Now let's look at Paul's defense of his preaching of the gospel and his authority. Look at verse 10. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? He was accused by these false teachers to the Galatians that he was just trying to elevate himself and he pleased people to do it. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant. Here again, it's the word slave of Christ. The Apostle Paul, when we read about him in the book of Acts and read his letters, he was not part of Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. He was a great influence of people, but it's not that he didn't care about people or their feelings, but he was not one to be a guy who just wanted to please people. Remember what Jesus said in what is called the Sermon on the Plain? He says, Woe to you if all men speak well of you. All people. Now, we, we want to get along with people, sure. And if we follow Jesus, we're going to get along with more people than not. But what the point is, is that we are committed to Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.9, many of you could quote this. He says, we make it our goal to please Him. His whole modus operandi, Paul's, was to please the Lord Jesus Christ. That was he, what he wanted to do. And that's 
uh, something we should emulate in his life. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We should be looking at the Apostle Paul, see what he teaches, and then imitate him. Believe what he teaches. It's the Word of God. It's the Gospel of God. And here, the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm not trying to please men. The book of John, chapter 12, talks about some rulers of Israel, probably members of the Sanhedrin, probably of the Sadducean contingency of those 70 who govern, because there's mention of the Pharisees, and talking about these rulers came to faith. They're unnamed. Probably Nicodemus, maybe Arimath, Joseph of Arimathea, probably even more. They came to faith, but they didn't, didn't want to come out of the closet and let people know they were followers of Jesus. And the reason for it was they were afraid that they would lose their approval rating in the synagogue. They couldn't be accepted as they might be. Paul was not one who minced words. Paul was not one who curried favor with men. He did say, I become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. And he was not being hypocritical in that. He would never compromise the gospel, never compromise what the Lord said he should or should not do. But he would not go against the truth, never. He says, famous saying of his, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. His whole life was Jesus. And he was looking forward to departing this world because he knew where he was going. He went on to say, but for your sakes, I'm going to stay behind. That sounds like an egotistical statement. But the Lord had told him, undoubtedly, you need to stay here with this group of people a bit longer, talking to the Philippians now, and it would have been to the whole body of Christ, all the people that he had ministered to and been a spiritual father to. And so, Paul, would you agree that Paul would not be a man who would compromise? He was falsely accused here. And that's another characteristic of false teachers. They point fingers at people who are true teachers of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go back for just a moment to the gospel. And we need to believe what it says. In the gospel, according to God, found in Romans, here are some verses about that gospel. Romans 3.23, most of you can quote it, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How many have sinned? All. The lowest common denominator in this room is we're sinners. All of us. All have sinned. Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift, get it? The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We cannot earn our salvation. We don't deserve it. It's a free gift. 
the moment we try to add something to it besides our surrender to the Lord, it's a botched relationship. We need to know that we are accepted in Christ. And it sounds crazy that He would accept anyone who comes and humbles herself or himself before the Lord and says, take me, Lord. Please take me. Those are words of sweetness in the ears of Jesus. He loves for us to come to Him and yield ourselves to Him. And also, in the book, in the fifth chapter of the book of Romans, God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't say, get cleaned up and then you can be saved. I can't tell you how many times when I've been witnessing to men particularly, and I sense that the thing that was hanging them up about giving their lives to Christ was that they felt like they had to get cleaned up. Their lives had been so strewn with immoral activity, and I'm not just talking about sexual immorality, I'm talking about breaking the laws of God. They said, I got to get cleaned up. And I, I would tell men when they would say that to me, I'd say, hey, do you take a shower in order to take a bath? Or the other way around? No, most guys, they get in the shower, right? And that's it. Or get in the bathtub and that's it. Christ's blood is that which cleanses us. And the blood is is the symbol of the work of Christ on the cross. He paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Unbelievable. And it's by grace. It's all about grace. If we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised Him from the dead, what is the promise? We shall be saved. Would you please turn to the very last page of your Bible, Revelation, chapter 22, verses 18 through 21. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. This kind of goes along with the false teachers, right? Sure it does. If anyone takes away, you add to or you take away from the words of this book. He's talking about revelation, but I believe it would be legitimate to apply this to all of God's word. God shall take him away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies of these things says, yes, I'm coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And here's the thing that he closes with. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. We have to live by grace what Christ has done for us. Today, I'd like to conclude by reading a little piece from a book by a man named David Siemens. And it's talking about the Habsburg dynasty in Europe. It was begun in 1273 
AD, it ended with the death of King Joseph I in November of 1916. Let me just read what happened. They would bring the body of the dignitary who was buried. There had to be someone in the royal line. This was the last king of this dynasty, 700 years. The officer in charge of the procession was the court marshal. As he approached the closed door and pounded on it with the hilt of his ceremonial sword, he was following a ceremony prescribed from time immemorial Open, he commanded. Who goes there, intoned the cardinal. We bear the remains of his imperial and apostolic majesty, Franz Joseph I, by the grace of God, emperor of Austria, king of Hungary, defender of the faith, prince of Bohemia, Moravia, grand duke of Lombardy, Venezia, Sergia, and so on, through the 37 titles of the emperor. We know him not replied the cardinal from behind the door, who goes there? We bear the remains of His Majesty, Franz Joseph I, Emperor of Austria and King of Hungary. This very abbreviated form was allowed only in dire emergencies. We know him not, came the cardinal's reply again, who goes there? We bear the body of Franz Joseph, our brother, a sinner like us all whereupon the massive doors swung slowly open and Franz Joseph was born within. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Let's pray. Can you say that you know for sure that you have eternal life because you've surrendered your life to Him lock, stock, and barrel. Today could be the day of your salvation by the grace of God. Cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, save me. He's been waiting for you. Give him your life. Lord, I just want to renew my commitment to you today, thanking you that in your way and for some reason you saved me. I'm so grateful, Lord, and I pray that everyone in this room will come to know you as his or her Lord and Savior, not part-time, but full-time. Amen.